for this podcast and the following message comes from Allianz Travel Insurance. If you're traveling overseas this summer, protect yourself with international travel insurance. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. And welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. It's a particularly exciting show today because an old favorite is back to talk about his next book. His name is Andrew McCarthy. If that sounds familiar, it's not only because he's a prolific travel writer, it's also because he starred in many of the iconic movies of the 1980s. Hey, Andrew, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Good to be with you. So I just finished your book this morning. It's called Walking with Sam, A Father, a Son, and 500 Miles Across Spain. And it talks about your journey on the Camino. And I got to say, you had me in tears at the end. Now, like you, I'm an easy cry. <laughs> uh, but but it's a really, really moving, wonderful book. Oh, Meg, my, thank you. Congratulations. Thanks very much. Yeah. The Camino is an extraordinary experience. And I, yeah, I walked it with my 19-year-old son. It was the second time I'd walked it. I, I walked it back in the early, mid-90s. 25, 27 years ago. And it really, it was a life-changing experience for me then. And it's something I'd always wanted to do again. Before we go any farther, I do want to let our listeners know what the Camino is, because not everybody is aware of it. And I thought your explanation of who St. James was and how his story plays into this was so fascinating. So can can you give our listeners just a nutshell pressy of uh what the Camino is? Yeah, back in the ninth century, the Catholic Church said that the uh, bones of the Apostle James had been discovered in the farthern westernmost reach of the Iberian Peninsula, and that anybody who marched to that spot would get half their time in purgatory knocked off, which was obviously a pretty good deal back in the day, right? And so, but I think what it may have also really been about was that Islam had taken over the Iberian Peninsula, and the Catholic Church wanted the real estate back. And so they said, while you're Uh, marching across Spain to get your almighty soul cleansed, kick out those damn Moors. And so it was the beginning of the the Crusades and the Knights Templar and all this gory, bloody history. And it worked because the Camino helped recapture Spain for for the church. Right, right. But nowadays, Nobody in the Catholic Church is saying that the the relics are still there. They've kind of walked that back. They right? walked it back pretty far, and that you go, know, oh, Saint James? No, he was probably never in Spain. I mean, the idea that James would have <laughs> never been in Spain was ludicrous. I mean, they the Catholic Church said that his bones floated there on a on a boat of stone with no, you know, it was a ridiculous story they concocted, and they have since kind of walked that back. But it doesn't stop all the hundreds of thousands of walkers from still going making this pilgrimage route, which is, you know, it's one of the interesting things about pilgrimage is that there's nothing to discover on a route. It's all been walked before, but your all the discoveries are kind of internal, you know, and you're dropping into the current of literally millions of people over centuries and centuries who've made this walk. And there's something to that that's very profound and can't be sort of easily dismissed. Right. And it's not just a religious pilgrimage anymore. You met people who were doing this walk for many reasons. Yeah. I mean, I I was raised Catholic, but I haven't darkened the door of a church in decades. And so it uh, it certainly wasn't that for me. Although I do think I had both times a quite a spiritual experience, but that has nothing to do with religion. And most people that I came across walking the path were not doing it for religious reasons. Right. Now, 
in the book, you recreate the the walk that you did 25 years ago. You do it with your son, but there are a number of different paths you can take to Santiago de Compostela. Why did you decide to do the same one again? Yeah, we did the Camino Frances, which starts um, basically, it starts anywhere really, but it starts in the south of France in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, this small village, and it climbs over the Pyrenees and goes through Pamplona, across to Leon and into Santiago. And it's sort of the main route. And yes, you said there are others. There's one up through Portugal. There's one across the north on the coast of Spain. There are a number of them. And I wanted to do the same one again because it was so strong in my memory, or, or so I thought. And so I just thought it would be a nice touchstone to go back to that one uh, again. And, right. and, you know, the Camino is a funny thing because it goes through tiny villages of, you know, one day you walk from a village of a dozen people into a city of 200,000. And yeah. there aren't many chances in life to do that kind of walk, you know? So it's yeah. very interesting. And then it's even more interesting to walk out of a city of 200,000 through the outskirts and ba- emerge back into the fields where there's no one and do that in a day's walk is really, you know, a big experience. So I, I was quite happy to do the same route again. And it really revealed to me how fallible memory is. I thought I remembered everything. And it turns out I remembered so little. Well, and it also revealed to you how popular this route has become. The Camino has changed drastically in 25 years, right? Yeah, it's, it's become a big star now, the Camino. And uh, yeah, I mean, that success is a mixed blessing for things, you know, it, it makes, there's more access, there's more support along the way for walkers. But on the other hand, there are more walkers. And so mm. like any success is a mixed blessing. So, but it's still the walking needs to be walked at the end of the day, right. you got to walk it. So whether they're a better restaurant along the way or a nicer place to sleep at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's about the experience. My father is a brilliant man, but he once said something to me that really puzzled me. He was talking about the relationship between parents and children. And he said to me that I am more important in your life than you will be in mine. And he said that was how it was for his father. And I always thought that maybe this was a father-child thing as as opposed to a mother-child thing. But a lot of this book has to do with your relationship with your son and your nervousness about what the Camino will reveal about you to him. And it, it seems like I, I, that my father was wrong, maybe, in a certain way. Or maybe I thought, maybe this is a generational thing. Maybe this is how fathers of a different generation see this. But there are points in the book where you're very, very worried about how your son is seeing you and experiencing you. Is that a fair thing to say? It made me feel like, oh, okay, uh, this is, this is, because uh, I feel very much like my, my children affect me as much as I aff- affect them. I, I would think you're on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, one of the things the Camino does is it reveals you to yourself and what your fears, anxieties, mental patterns are, emotional cycles are, because there's something in the walking. And walking is the pace at which we were really born to process things, you know, and we've gotten so far away from it. And so, you know, a lot of those anxieties you mentioned there, I didn't really, I, I knew I had, but to have them really come to the fore was an interesting thing, experience to have. You know, I, I, when I left home at 17 and had no real relationship with my dad, 
throughout the rest of his life and, you know, my adult life. And that was until, you know, we reconciled on his death, you know, and that's one of the great regrets of my life. And I did not want that to happen with my children. And so that's one of the reasons I asked Sam to join me because before he went off into the world, I wanted him, I wanted to have that connection, that this shared experience. And, you know, all we ever want in life is for people to see us and see me. Yeah. See me. Uh-huh. And I think as parents, we often don't see our kids clearly. They're sort of, they kind of look like us. Maybe they behave a little like us. And so we think they're kind of knockoff version of us. And it's just my experience. That's just not the case. And vice versa. I think Sam says, and I put it in the book, I think it really takes a long time, if ever, to see your parents as real people, you know? And yeah. I think that's really true. And so I, one of the, my goals in this was to let him see me as much as I could and mm-hmm. to see, try and see him. You know, and I had the ultimate gift that you get with adult children, which is the luxury of time while we're walking, which you never have with adult children. They're always racing. Yeah. You're racing off. You know, hey, you want to have dinner? You have some sushi? Oh, okay. See you, see you tomorrow. You know, and they're gone. And to just be able to walk beside him and let him process things that he was processing and just listen and not have to have answers, not have to have fixes, not have to be the parental, you know, expert on these things, I think allowed him to gain a trust in, in me that I've found very rewarding. Well, I think there was big trust in you in that he allowed you to write about him. Was that that at all a negotiation or did he know that that was probably going to happen since you're a travel writer when he signed up for the hike? (laughs) I did take a bunch of pads with me then being a travel writer, you know, you know, you're going to write about (laughs) everywhere you go at some point in some way. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I started filling my moleskin pads with um, things and you know, the Camino ends in Santiago de Compostela, which is 50 miles from the sea. And that's where we were going to. And at a certain, but there's a place beyond that, 50 miles beyond at the sea, a place called Finisterre, which many walkers feel the pull to continue on and go to. And I never did. I did not. I'm going to Santiago if I make it. And that's where I'm stopping. But Sam wanted to go. When he heard about Finisterre, he said, I'm going to march to the sea. You do what you want. I'm going to the sea. And the idea that he was the low-hanging fruit of that metaphor of my son going beyond my accomplishments, uh, I think that's something that's hardwired into every parent. We want our kids to succeed us, you know, the first one yeah. to go to college or become a doctor, whatever. And, you know, that he was going to go beyond me and walk to the sea. And I, that metaphor was too delicious to resist. And in that moment when he said <laughs> that, I said, oh, I've got a book here. Because really it was about, it's about our relationship. It's, it's a travel book, sure. And it's a physical journey. Absolutely. And but it's really to me more of an emotional one between us. And so when he yes. wanted to go beyond, I thought that was like, ooh, this is too good to resist. And he was fine with me writing about <laughs> it. It's like he was fine. He didn't seem to care really. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, let's go back to the travel because yes, you're right. The father-son relationship is at the heart of this book, and it's very moving at, at certain points. But you also experience parts of Spain that are weird and surprising. One part is called the Meseta. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And yeah. you you describe it as this vast kind of blast oven uh, where the heat can get so intense. It's what might have drove Don Quixote mad. Yeah. And I guess that's the part of the, the uh, Camino that, that really tests people the most, right? Or no? Yeah, no, absolutely. The Meseta is about a a week long's worth of walking, and it's really just fields and fields and fields of wheat. You walk to the horizon, you see the wheat to the horizon, you get to the horizon, you come over the rise, and you see 
week to the horizon again. And it goes on for days and it <laughs> kind of makes you crazy. There's no wonder that Don Quixote was tilting at windmills. You know, I mean, it was, it, it kind of plays with your mind. And yeah, I mean, the Camino walks through all sorts of, he walks through beautiful cities, Leon and, and Pamplona is a fantastic city in Logroño. I discovered Logroño this time in a way that I, the first time, I don't know how I, I sort of missed it. I just sort of marched through it. Huh. We had a fantastic experience there. It's a great city. And Borgos is a terrific city. There are all these kind of provincial second tier cities up there that are fantastic and really worth a trip in their own right. And uh, I, I loved it. I Even if you're not walking it. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think Pamplona is one of my favorite cities in the world. Well, and I love the way you you wove in local history and local customs like why are there live chickens in the cathedral of, of Santo Domingo? Yeah, in uh, one of the smaller towns, there, there are live chickens in a place of honor above the altar there. And there have been for centuries because back, you know, one of the, some Camino law and the Camino has fantastic, crazy history. You know, the, that old Catholic history is kind of insane and it's full of metaphor and lore and who knows what's true and not. But back in the day, a family was marching to Santiago and their son was arrested. And, and hung wrongly. He was accused of something he didn't do. And so the family marched to Santiago in his honor. And then on their way back, because back then you had to march all the way back home too, because there was no, right. no bus or plane. <laughs> they were marching back and their son was still alive, hanging from the tree. And they ran to the magistrate uh. and said, our son is still alive. You've got to let him down. And the magistrate said, that son is that it was a dinner. And he said, that child is no more alive than this chicken on my plate. And at that moment, the chicken jumped up, plucked and all, and started squawking and dancing around the table. And so that was a miracle of Santo Domingo. And ever since then, there have been chickens in the church. I love that. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> the Camino is filled with those kind of stories. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me was... I always think of people walking the Camino, and it's not something I've done, mostly because I'm terrified of the blisters. <laughs> Those sound just horrifying. But anyway, but you guys, you had devices with you, and you were listening to music, and you ran into a, a wacky guy who was mostly taking taxis everywhere. Are there ground rules for what the Camino should be, or what 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 should be part of it or not? Or is that not the mindset? Oh, that's for anyone to decide for themselves, you know. There are people that don't have any technology because they want to get back to nature. You know, I, I didn't feel the need to impose any of that on us. What's interesting about the technology is that, as we all talk about all the time, we're actively defaulting to these things all the time so we don't get bored, we don't get anything. We just constantly want that stimulation. And as you walk the Camino, you, all the technology just kind of recedes and falls into an appropriate place. You know, there are times I'd walk the whole day and I go, oh, I didn't look at my phone today. I better check my messages. You know what I mean? And so for, for us, I didn't feel the need to sort of lay down these rules of we're going to get back to purity. And but to me, that just seemed, you know, right. But yes, and there was a fellow that did seem to take taxis to every town. And I was kind of like, Dude, what, what, are you, <laughs> what are you doing? And as my son said, there's a saying on the Camino, walk your own Camino, which is basically mind your own business. And, uh, and it's a very good expression, and we should mind walk our own Caminos all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that I'll take away from the book, uh, well, I'll start this with an anecdote. Many years ago, I was in Colombia, the country of Colombia, and I took a silly touristic salsa tour where, you know, at 8 p.m., you learned how to salsa dance, and then you went to club after club after club. 
And at three in the morning, most of the other tourists had peeled off and went home to sleep, but I was still out dancing. This was about five years ago. And I thought to myself, I have to remember this moment of happiness, uh, that this is such a joyous thing. And someday when I can no longer dance, I can look back and remember that I was out to three in the morning uh, in Colombia dancing salsa. And you write in the book that as an older person, (laughs) oh, thanks. Uh, Well, you write in the book that as an older person, you've gotten more thoughtful about recognizing the moments of happiness and trying to somehow uh, appreciate them as they happen, right? Well, I did. I in my youth, there were often, um, yeah, I was often happy in hindsight. I go, oh, that was a great time, you know. And yeah. as I've gotten older, <laughs> I've gotten the gift more of being able to recognize when I'm happy in that instant. I, I think sometimes I would fear that if I recognize, acknowledge happiness, something bad will happen, you know. But uh, yeah, I think that's an important thing to be able to recognize. Like this is it. This is this is what's happening right now, and it's it's nice, you know. Yeah. No, I think it's an important it's important thing to remember to do. I think our our minds often go to the negative and and we also have to acknowledge the beauty in our lives because our lives are very short. And the uh, gratitude of that is you know not to be all rah rah but the, whenever one starts experiencing gratitude in a certain way it just furthers the experience, you know, gratitude feeds on itself and happiness sort of feeds on itself in that way, you know. And there's a lot of times the struggle and whatever. There were a lot of times on the Camino it was like, "Oh my god, this is hard." But when there was nice stuff happening, it was nice to be able to go, this is worth it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I got to ask, has your son read the book and what does he think of the way you framed the story? Uh, He has not. (laughs) (laughs) He did read the audio book with me. He read all his lines and things from the audio book. So he's going to, he's not much of a reader. Uh, And so he's going to wait for the audio book, which I guess is out now. Ah. Oh, well, that's great. Well, it really is just such a wonderful read. My congratulations once again. And thank you, Andrew, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Yeah, it's great to be with you again, Pauline. And here's another word from this week's sponsor, Allianz Travel Insurance. When you're far from home, anything can happen. That's why more than 70 million American travelers trust Allianz Travel Insurance to protect their adventures. With benefits for medical emergencies and evacuations, trip cancellations, travel delays, and baggage mishaps, you can travel with perfect peace of mind. Learn more and get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. And we're going to be talking about some of the things that can go wrong right now with my next guest, Sean Cudahy. He is, we're proud to say, one of the many wonderful writers who contribute to Fromers.com. Hey, Sean, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, good to be with you. I gotta say, your recent two articles were so damn helpful. You answered, I think, one of the most burning questions in travel, which is, is it actually worth it to book travel on one of the cheapo airlines like Spirit, uh, like Frontier? Do you actually save money or do all the damn fees add up to more than what you'd save? I don't want to keep people in suspense for too long. What's the overall answer to that? And then we'll unpack why. 
Well, I think it really depends on the situation. So I guess I'm qualifying it a little bit there. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 there's a few different factors that can be at play. Now, the experts say if, if you do things right, if you're strategic about how you uh, you know pack your bags and how many people in your traveling party bring a large bag, you really can save money by taking advantage of those really low base fares and avoiding as many of the fees as possible. However, there are some things to keep in mind. First of all, you know, if you're someone that needs a lot of different requirements, seat selection, baggage selection, that might put it over the top where you're better off flying on one of the legacy airlines. And if you have a travel credit card or if you have status with one of the big airlines, that can wipe out a lot of the fees and make the uh, legacy airlines more worth it. So it, it does depend, hmm. but you really can save money. Well, you can save money, but... You have to travel in a way that a lot of us are not used to traveling. For example, with the baggage fees, some of these airlines, and let's call out those that do, don't let you bring on a normal-sized carry-on bag at the lowest price ticket, right? That's right, yeah. And, and that's been largely a response to some of what we've seen with the rising up of these so-called budget airlines. Um, we've seen Delta, American, United create these basic economy ticket classes where some of the airlines, not all of them, you're only allowed just a small personal item that fits under the seat. You might not be able to select your seat. So, so if you're flying basic economy, in some cases, that can mimic the low-cost airline experience in a lot of ways. Right. And you you make the point that a lot of people assume they're going to be able to get away with getting a rollerboard suitcase, even a small one, on these planes. But some of these airlines have two lines uh, based on how much you paid, how many things you bought, right? That's right. As part of the story, I took a day trip on uh, down to Orlando on Frontier. And uh, truth be told, it was my first time flying with Frontier. And, and one of the things that, you know, I think on if you're used to flying with one of the legacy airlines, a lot of the time the priority lane is based on your status or, or something like that. Really, at Frontier, you know, it's about did you pay for a full size checked bag or not? And if you didn't, you're not going to be able to get away with sneaking it on board. They have agents in place there watching. They they, they know. And I, in fact, I saw a few people get pulled aside and have to pay for their bags at the last minute. And that's when you can really end up shelling out some money. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I flew that uh, notorious European carrier between Dublin and Krakow. Blanking on the name of that carrier, what what would Are it we be? Talking it's about Ryanair? EasyJet. Oh, Easy, EasyJet. Yeah, it was either EasyJet or Ryanair. Which one was it? I think it was. I think it might have been Ryanair. And as I walked into the area, uh, the gate area, people around me literally gasped out loud because I was dragging behind me a what I thought was a normal sized rollerboard carry on luggage suitcase. But it was the American size. It wasn't the European size. So when I got to the gate, they said it had to be checked in the hold. And the cost to do that at the gate came to double the price of my ticket. So I ended up saving nothing by, by flying Ryanair. And I had to sit through a lot of onboard Ryanair. They, they desperately try to make you spend more by doing like gambling. Uh, games <laughs> as you're on the flight. It's the weirdest flight. So I, I think that's that's something that Americans really need to know, that the carry-ons that we've gotten used to will not work 
on these low-cost carriers. You have to have a bag that will fit under the seat, and the seats are engineered in such a way that not much will fit under them, right? That's right. You know, I I, I had a harder time, I have to say, fitting even my backpack under the seat than I usually <laughs> do. I don't have a technical measurement to back that up, but it definitely felt like a snug little little spot that, it, that, that the backpack had to fit in there. Yeah. I thought you gave some good ideas, though, that people can use. Like if you're traveling with somebody else to save money, maybe you put all of your stuff, both yours and your traveling companion stuff in one suitcase. And that way you only have to check one suitcase. What are some other ways uh, that people can actually save money on these budget carriers? Yeah. So I think, you know, as we've gotten used to these baggage fees, we tend to think of checking a bag as a way that we end up spending a lot more money and that you save money by not checking a bag. These airlines actually, they want to free up this overhead bin space as much as possible. So sometimes when you see these bundles that they uh, that the low-cost airlines will offer you, it'll actually be cheaper to check a bag than to carry a full-size bag on. In some cases, not all. And that's a way where you know, you're still going to pay, but you might be paying less. Right. Yeah, the other really thing, surprising. Yeah, the other thing is, and, and we kinda, you kind of touched on this, but you know, if you're traveling in a party of four, a family, for instance, the fewer people that need to do add-on charges, the better. Does everybody need to select a seat? As you mentioned, does everybody need a bag? Maybe two members of the family can go with just a backpack that fits under the seat. That means you're really reducing the cost. You know, if it's $37 each way to bring a full-size carry-on bag on, if, you're, if that's times two instead of times four, that's a lot of money that you're saving right there. Right. I know the DOT, though, is trying to allow families of four, especially with those with young children, or maybe only those with young children, to sit together. How does that affect the equation? Yes. So interestingly, Frontier, which has this, um, like a number of airlines, this pretty strict policy when it comes to paying for, for seats, they are actually one of the few airlines that has passed the DOT's checklist for allowing a, a parent with uh, with children to sit together. I don't have the exact policy at my fingertips, but I think it's they'll allow at least one parent to sit with a, a kid or something along those lines mm. uh, at no added cost. Um, right. So that is a plus. If you're, you know, you're two parents, two kids, maybe they're not gonna be able to sit with both parents, both kids, but at least you'll have one kid with one parent. You also wrote about how things are changing in the UK in terms of fluids on planes. And this really surprised me because I was in the UK last summer and I thought they had their baggy game together. Actually, as you're going through security, they were giving out appropriately sized bags so that everybody could bundle together their liquids. But now because of new technology, they're getting rid of the no liquids requirement, right? That's right. I tell you what, I was at Heathrow just a few weeks ago back in March, and it felt as strict as ever to me there. But that is changing that with these new CT scanners, uh, which we are, we do have here in the US, they're, they're appearing in more airports. They, by June 2024, they are going to allow people to, there's not going to be caps on liquid sizes anymore. Right now, they're you're limited wow. to 100 milliliters, which is basically the, the, the equivalent of what the limit is here in the US. 
that rule is going to go away. A couple airports in London are already trialing this. Yeah, big changes are, are on the horizon there. I'm in my low, my early 30s, and I can barely remember a time when I was allowed to bring a full-size water bottle on board. <laughs> wow. So that's changing in the UK. What about the US and the EU and other parts of the world? Do you think very soon we will be able to bring an entire damn bottle of shampoo with us uh, in a carry-on bag? Yeah, it'd be nice not to have to shell out for that huge bottle of sunscreen at an expensive beach destination, right? Ah. So the way I'd answer that is I would say it depends on what your definition of soon is. So we are not going to be subject to these limits forever. They're clearly on the part of the TSA is a hope to get away from that at some point. Now, what I am told is that we are not talking about a year. We're not talking about three years. We're probably not talking about four years. Maybe experts are telling me five, seven years down the road. We could be. It is going to change. It is going to go away someday with the new technology, but there's a few factors. You know, if you just look at the map, obviously, so many more airports over here in the US than in the UK. And in order to, there's enough confusion as there is, I think, is what experts kind of conclude at those checkpoints. They want to be able to push the button and have everybody flip a switch, so to speak, and have everybody change their policy at the same time here in the US. In order to do that, they're going to have to have the technology deployed everywhere. Uh, So it's going to take time, but it is the hope down the road. That's surprising because I have been finding that there's different uh, metrics or maybe not metrics, but different rules in play at every airport mm-hmm. right now. It, I, you know, I, I have TSA pre-check. So usually I, I go through that line, but if I'm traveling with my daughters and they don't, and I have been recently, I've been noticing that some places are letting us keep our shoes on. Others aren't making us pull out our computers. Is this a uh, wiggle room common or was I just lucky? Yeah. So if you have TSA pre-check, you should generally be able to leave all the liquids in the bag, leave your shoes on, leave the laptop yes. in the bag. Um, right. As for, Now, at, outside the pre-check lanes, in the standard lanes, there is starting to become uh, a little bit of variation depending on whether they've rolled out these new CT scanners. The idea with these CT scanners is that they can take three, they can generate a 3D picture of what's in your bag and move it around and look at it. So they theoretically wouldn't need to have the liquids actually out of the bag. So as that technology gets deployed, you know, more widely, you know, at airports, they will allow even the passengers in the standard lanes to leave those items in the bag and potentially leave the shoes on. That is a change that is happening as we speak and is going to happen, you know, more quickly. The the part that's down the road a little bit more is actually being able to bring on that full size bottle of sunscreen. And again, that's years down. That's years away still. Yeah, very interesting. One other thing I noticed at the airport uh, last week was, and this may be, uh, uh, well, it happened three times. It seems like uh, for a while, most of us have our boarding passes on our phones. And I think that is becoming, that is slowing down the lines so much to board at the gate because it takes so many people so long to figure out how to swipe that QR code that three flights in a row, the flight attendant or the gate attendant was handling people's phones, was asking, let me take that. She, and she did it, and that made the line move more quickly. 
Have you noticed that or is that just was that just the luck of the draw on the last three flights I took? I've certainly seen it before, uh, maybe not in mass like you were describing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as as people, uh, I think during COVID probably exacerbated this people switching over to the touchless uh, digital devices. Of course, it doesn't really become touchless when the flight attendant has to handle or or, sorry, the gate agent has to handle your device. Yeah, yeah, there's, you know, you get people that maybe are using an internet browser instead of the Apple wallet that it downloads to. And sometimes that can be a little glitchy. I actually was having, I had a hard time figuring out how to get my Frontier boarding pass on my phone in downloaded into the wallet. So I actually had to refresh it a couple times and ran into some glitches. Probably the huh. nature of the, the nature of the beast when it comes to using the technology, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. Well, so nice to speak with you. Thank you so much, Sean, for appearing on the Firmer Travel Show. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. That's it for this week's show. To those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Watching cable